0: talks about a lively hope based upon our obedience to God and His ways that gives us a greater and a livelier hope at salvation. So I want to go on now uh, in this series with the second epistle of Peter, and this one continues somewhat the same theme that was very much apparently on Peter's mind. Uh, There are some other themes that go with it. One is hope. Another of the things he brings out very poignantly, or very pointedly, I guess, would be that of urgency. And thirdly, some of the problems that the church was facing then, and would be facing at the end time. Uh, He thought the end time was upon him, and Christ allowed him to labor under that misapplication of the prophecies. However, Peter's end time was coming very near when he wrote this, and even refers to it in this book, that he would die as Christ had said he would. But we, I think, are very aware that we are at the end of times now. So what Peter has to say here is going to be very, very important for us to consider, and the conditions and the things that he warns us about in terms of people Uh, he brings out very clearly, just as does the book of of Jude. So let's uh, dive into 2 Peter today. Uh, It's a very short book, only three chapters, but it is a very powerful book with a great deal in it that we need to consider right now uh, in these end times. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle, Of Emmanuel, we'll use that term in here for the most part because we look upon him that way now, and perhaps even in this book, which is fairly heavily prophetic. uh, It says in the end time there in Isaiah 7 and 8 that they would call him Emmanuel, so uh, I do substitute that sometimes, as I've said before. Uh, He was both a servant. And an apostle. He held a very high office in the church of God. Uh, Christ had appointed those twelve as apostles, and later uh, Paul as well. And indeed, Paul in Ephesians 5 mentioned the different offices and administrations within the church, and apostle was the first listed. So he held the highest office in the church under Christ. Uh, he, of course, being the head of the church and the chief cornerstone. But God did put within the church uh, a, I guess, hierarchy is a pretty good word to use, actually. A lot of people who despise government don't like the word term hierarchy or uh, leadership or rulership or whatever word you might want to plug in there as a synonym. Get out Roger's Casaurus and check it out. There's a lot of different synonyms. But he had been placed in that job as an overseer of the church. And that's why he could write this letter with authority and give instruction and guidance to those people. So he gives his credentials to begin with. And then he says, To them that have obtained like precious faith with us, Through the righteousness of God, the Father, spoken of, and our Savior, Emmanuel. So, he had been given promises of eternal life, given promises of a job in the kingdom of God. Uh, The twelve apostles will be over the twelve tribes during uh, the millennium and through God's kingdom. So, that governmental structure that Christ established within the church at the beginning is going to be carried over into the world tomorrow. And even people like Reuben and Gad and Asher, Zebulun, uh, Ephraim, Manasseh, and so on, of the original uh, family that became Israel, even those heads of those families will not be in charge of their own tribe in the world tomorrow. It will be the twelve apostles over the twelve tribes. So, the government of God in the future is going to be based upon spiritual membership in whichever tribe God spiritually puts each and every one of us. And it doesn't matter uh, our uh, physical bloodline, whatever it might be, He will spiritually designate who is to be where. So, He said... Christ appointed me and the other apostles, and you, he said, have been given the precious faith in God and in Christ that we could be a part of the family of God as well. So, our setting aside or sanctification toward the kingdom of God has been done through the righteousness of the Father and the Son. It was not our righteousness that led to our calling to the truth of God. He said he calls the weak and the base. He doesn't call the mighty, the noble, and the wise, 1 Corinthians. So, it is through their righteousness that we can be made righteous, because as human beings we are not naturally righteous by any stretch of the imagination. So, that has to be added It has to be uh, grafted in. It has to be taught to us. We have to be led by the Spirit of God to understand. And that is why he set teachers in the church to lead, to guide, to help people understand better the way and the plan of God. The Old Testament was written by various men uh, who were in the government of God, like Moses or David, or the prophets themselves, which is also a New Testament office, to write the Old Testament, which would be prophetic toward the coming of Christ, and even those events about his second coming. But it was not enough. A new covenant had to be made with new promises, and Christ began to call a select bunch of people to reveal his knowledge and truth to. It did not come through the Jews. Christ called them snakes and uh, unwashed cups and, and uh, whitened sepulchres and some other really nice things. And he, sa- and he just disfellowshipped them. He said, I'll have nothing more to do with you until you accept those whom I sent. Well, who did he send? He trained the apostles, and then he sent them out to teach, to preach, to baptize, to chasten, to do all those things that are there that we as human beings need. So, he began to call people from all races, mattered not any more bloodline whatsoever, because... Being a physical Israelite did not make you a part of spiritual Israel. Only the infusion of God's Spirit through the new covenant made that a possibility. So that now all people of all creeds, of all races, can be part of the family of God. Uh, That was made clear by Paul and by Peter, but it is also made clear even in the Old Testament prophecies, is it not? that in the end time, God would call a remnant of those who had been called out of the world to do the last work of God before Christ returns, the building of the temple and of Jerusalem, and of preaching the gospel around the world as a witness, through the two witnesses or prophets of Revelation 11. So that is going to occur. But that remnant, he says, he will draw from north, south, east, and west. So he is making a racial statement there, that in the end time, uh, Paul and Peter's teaching would turn out to be correct. That God has grafted into spiritual Israel people of all races around the world, and they will come from around the world. And that's why, under Worldwide Church of God and Herbert Armstrong, who was used as a calling voice, people were converted Around the world. And they will come from all over to answer God's call here at the end time. So, our righteousness that we might have, be it any, has to come through the Father and the Son. We cannot be righteous on our own. Indeed, we cannot even understand on our own. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw in Matthew 6, uh, Matthew, John 6, 44. So, we cannot open our own minds. God has to open your mind to the truth, and it is His righteousness that opens, guides, and leads us to understand the Bible. And Christ even said that most would not understand it, that the whole world would be deceived, including so-called Christianity that only a few would have their minds open, and Christ even said that he spoke in parables that they might be deceived and might not understand, so that he would not have to judge them harshly and destroy them because they chose to disobey. If they're not called and don't understand, they can't be judged by the things written here. So he has allowed Satan's great deception, and he has only opened the minds of the few. And we're to be thankful and honored that, I guess, we were weak and base, and therefore he opened our minds and called us and said, I'll make something of you, because of and of ourselves we are nothing. So, maybe I expound a lot on this, but we need to understand that it isn't our righteousness or our goodness in any way, uh, but it is the righteousness of God through His Holy Spirit that flows through us and out to others that creates righteousness. Righteousness is not something that you can have within you and keep to yourself. God is outgoing. His Spirit is outgoing. It is not selfish, uh, but is there to be shared with others. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's writing this letter to the churches, scattered, as he said in 1 Peter, scattered all over the place. uh, Because he felt that this was important information that should go out to the whole church, not just where he was. So he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Emmanuel, our Lord. There's an awful lot in verse 2 as well the pardon, the goodwill, the grace of God, and peace be multiplied to you. How do we have the good grace, the pardon, unmerited though it be, of God? It's through knowledge. Through knowledge of God and of Christ and what he did. He spent quite a little time about the suffering of Christ and the sacrifice he made in First Peter. And he brings it up again here, that if we are going to have God's good wishes and peace among ourselves, it will come through proper knowledge, proper understanding of the ways of God that we apply one to another, and he'll get into that more as he goes on. So it's easy to say grace and peace, but how do you... Obtain that. It is proper knowledge and how you use that knowledge. Verse 3, according as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue. So he says, grace and peace be there, but you better understand how to obtain it. James talked about that quite a bit. He says, why do you have war and fighting and confusion and frustration among yourselves? And he shows that it comes from selfishness and our own desires, and that we need to put aside our selfish desires and serve one another in love. So, the same really is being said here by Peter. It is only by the power of the Spirit of God enacted through our minds and hearts that give us the things that pertain to life and godliness. So, you can't just say, I accept Jesus and expect things to go well and your relationship to be good with God. There is much more to it than that. God has called us to a way of life described by every word in this book. Live by every word of God. That is why it is important that we study the Bible, not just so we can feel good about ourselves, but so that we might understand all the words of God, because that gives us the knowledge to be applied that will bring peace, joy, love, and happiness among us. And it is when we stray from the use of that knowledge that we get ourselves in trouble. He's called us to glory, or by glory, my margin says, by His glory and His virtue. And He's called us to be like Him, to think as He thought and to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. We need to train our minds and even our subconscious to think as Christ thought and thinks today. Not our own way of thinking, because it will lead to trouble. Verse 4, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises. So, the knowledge of the true way and life of God, through the power of God's Holy Spirit, He gives us great and precious promises. How many people in the world understand that God has created us in the image of God, at least physically? and instructed us to come to, spiritually speaking, walk in the image of God. To think just as Christ thought, to walk and act just as he acted, and then to live eternally in the God family as the bride of Christ. And the Bible points out real early on in Genesis that like kind can only beget like kind. Dogs, dogs, horses, horses, and hummingbirds, hummingbirds. That's the way it is. And humans produce humans in the likeness of God. And God is producing his own kind. He is transforming us from what we are to become God. Now that sounds like blasphemy to most, even Christians. It's one of the most precious truths we can have is that God is recreating Himself here on this earth. He promises we'll be kings and priests. He promises we'll be the bride of Christ. Do you think Christ is going to marry anything except something in His own likeness, in His own image? A man on this earth doesn't marry a dog. And Christ is not going to marry anything less than God. Now, the Father will always be preeminent, and Christ will be preeminent over his bride. But we are to be very God. Read the book, Mystery of the Ages. It's all in there. And the scripture to back it up. So we have exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. That backs up what I just said. We're to be partakers of the very nature of God. It's outgoing, it's loving, it's giving, it's kind, it's patient, it's peaceable. And by nature, human beings are not that. By nature, we are selfish and lying, full of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy, and all those things that are the works of the flesh. And that has to be transformed, changed into the very divine nature of God. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, or the desires of the flesh, whatever they may be, and they are myriad. So he imparts his spirit, which is the seed that must grow and grow until we can be born into the kingdom of God. A child, when begotten, is very, very small. And if born immediately, it will die. We cannot be part of the kingdom of God until we grow in spirituality to the place that we are ready to be born into the kingdom of God. That analogy is used throughout the Bible. He's reminding us why we're here what our goal is, what our purpose is, what God intends to do with us someday. You know, it's easy to forget your purpose. It's easy to let it slip as we go about life daily and lose sight of where we're headed. So, then we begin to do things we shouldn't do because we've lost vision of the goal. Hosea said, because lack of vision, the people perish." So, we must keep those goals ever in mind. And Peter will tell us that a little later on, that he puts us in remembrance of these things, although we already know them. He said, You need to be reminded constantly so you don't let it slip or forget or go through life not keeping your goal in mind. So, he said, He has called us to righteousness, to His glory to have the same kind of virtue he has. And then he says, don't be like the world, but, verse 5, we need to add certain things. Besides understanding the goal and the purpose that God has put us here for, we need to add these things in verse 5. Beside this, giving all diligence, really working at... Christianity is not an easy job. It is very difficult. Straight is the way. Narrow is the gate or the path to righteousness. There are many, many religions who will tell you it's quite easy. Just accept the Lord and you'll be saved. No, it's not what it's like. If you've got to give all diligence, that means that what you are seeking, what you're trying to do, is difficult and requires diligent effort. It's not easy. If it was easy, a rich man could just say, Okay, I accept Jesus. But God says that a rich man getting into the kingdom of God is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. I've never observed that, but I can't imagine it would be easy on the camel. Now, I understand the commentary say there was a low gate in the city of Jerusalem and the camels had to get on their knees to go through it. The point is, it was hard to do, even if that was the analogy being used. So, the things he is about to talk about don't come easy, Okay? They require hard work. So he says, Give all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. So he's saying we already have faith in God based on verses 1 through 4, the faith that comes through the knowledge of God and as we begin to follow God's way in faith. And Remember James says, Your faith is demonstrated by your works. I'll show you my faith by my works, he said. So if we have this faith, then he's telling us you've got to have the following works. Add to your faith virtue, or maybe in more modern English, uh, integrity, so that you are following through and living what you believe. Now, there's a tough one right there, because hypocrisy comes easy. It's one thing in your mind to say, yes, I believe this, I need to do this. It's quite yet another thing to apply it and to live up to it. And that's something that all human beings are challenged in. That's one of our buzzwords of our society and culture today. We're not retarded anymore, we're challenged uh, to make us feel better. I guess about being stupid or whatever. Uh, And then that's okay to some degree. I'm not knocking that necessarily, but it's so easy to look upon those who are perhaps less fortunate or have less background in teaching or understanding or capacity that others might have and look down upon them. But what about us? Aren't we all spiritual retards? Yeah, I think we'd have to say that compared to God the Father and to Christ himself. We're certainly retarded. And we have to add integrity. And the reason I say that is integrity does not come easy. Where you fully believe something and then fully follow through with it. That is a challenge that we all have and we are certainly challenged in that sense. Spiritual ignorance, spiritual incompetence, and we have to work at that. So, faith requires that integrity or virtue be added to it. And to integrity or virtue, add knowledge. Well, knowledge is very important. God has given us a whole book of knowledge here that is very, very difficult to digest in completeness. Some people have six verses they like. Some people have ten. Whole huge church organizations may have a total of twenty verses they refer to. And really, really, seekers often have a (laughs) hundred. You know, uh, you're getting out there on the fringe when you have a hundred scriptures that you refer to in modern Christianity. And yet God says, we got all of these. So there's an awful lot of knowledge to be imparted by this book and it's pretty extensive and there's something new to be picked up every time we open this book a different application a better understanding a nuance just whatever you might be facing there's something there to give you insight in this word because it's a living word it's not dead it's alive through the Spirit of God so Once we have knowledge, then we have to be careful and add temperance or moderation. Because people who have great knowledge in certain areas then tend to lord it over others or to uh, put others down or to misuse and abuse the knowledge they have. So we have to be moderate in our approach and not become... Strung out in the wrong direction. And to that moderation, he tells us to be moderate in all things, in another scripture add patience. You can be puffed up very easily with knowledge, and you can misuse it and not be moderate in your approach to other people. So he says add patience. That's a very important part of love. God gives the fruit of the Spirit, and He includes patience as one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. So a very important part of love is patience with one another. It's so easy to criticize one another, to point out each other's faults. We've been over this how many times? How many more times will it be gone over wherever people gather because we lack patience with one another? But we have to add it. You know, human beings tend to change pretty slowly, don't they? You know, I can remember as a child at the Feast of Tabernacles being preached sermons that sometimes three, four, five hours long and maybe two in one day. And so often, the things that we still read and preach about today are the same things that they were reading and preaching about then. People say, well, why do you repeat that? Why do you go back over that? Because we never got it, and we aren't living up to it. Why did James have to talk so much about the tongue? Because people were still having trouble controlling their tongues. How many times, if you've sat in, church of God for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Have you heard that quoted in James? And yet that's one of the biggest problems anywhere in the church of God. Or in religion today is misuse of the tongue. Why don't we learn? Why don't we get it? We're slow. We're really slow. Didn't I say we're spiritually retarded? Yeah, we are. And we utter a lot of things that should not be uttered. Spiritual stupidity, if you will. God has made us in His likeness, in His image. We're the children, the sons of God, and yet we'll criticize one another. Boy, when are we going to ever learn? When will we ever learn? So, have patience with one another. Don't you need patience? I certainly do. Well, then why not give it? If we need it, we need to give it. To treat others as we would have them treat us. And to patience, godliness. He's combining some attributes of the Spirit here that add up to godliness. We're to be like God. Think like God. And to godliness. Now, if we are to think and act according to Scripture in the mind of God, what is that going to cause among ourselves? What does he say to add next? To godliness, brotherly, kindness. Kindness to each other. Careful treatment of one another. Encouraging, strengthening. Sharpening to one another. Not putting down, discriminating against, speaking evil of, telling lies about, or even truths that might be character assassination and spiritual murder. There's a lot covered here. Kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. So... These are all elements that boil down to the greatest thing, and that is love, 1 Corinthians 13. If you incorporate the things that Peter talked about here, it is going to produce the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. You can say you love, but do you have these characteristics that Paul talked about, that that Paul talked about in Galatians 5? or that Peter is talking about here. These things add up to love. You can say, I love, but unless we have these characteristics, it isn't godly love. It's perhaps human emotion, but human emotion is not necessarily the love of God, is it? The love of God is defined by obedience to his ways. And the ways of God, Peter is spelling out for us here, They had problems in the church back then, quite obviously. They were spiritually retarded too, if you will. They needed instruction on how to get past that and to be complete and full, mature Christians, just as do we. Verse 8, For if these things be in you, and abound, You can't have a little patience, you can't have a little moderation, you can't have a little bit of love, you can't have a little bit of brotherly kindness. You have to have them in abundance. So they bubble out of you. That is what he wants us to become. Sometimes we can barely tolerate one another. Sometimes we don't like one another. Sometimes we have trouble getting along with one another. You know what? We have a little bit of these things. If we had them in abundance, well, that's the way we thought. That's the way our subconscious, our mentality, our whole being has been programmed, is to be like God and to have His attributes. Then they will abundantly come out. We go along as marginal Christians by doing just enough to call ourselves Christians. But is it in abundance? Is it a welling up of joy and happiness that we find our family living in, our spiritual family? Or is it marginal? Do we barely survive? he's calling us here to a very great and high calling and to a high standard that we need to live up to. And it doesn't come easy. If these things be in you and abound, you see children sometimes playing and have incredible energy. They can bounce and jump and run all day long. And you and I barely make it from the rocking chair to the front porch. You know, whatever it might be. I can remember when I was a little guy like this, and my granddaddy, we were up in the mountains in New Mexico, and I can remember him saying, Boy, I wish I had the energy Daryl has. Because I'd run up the trail, up the mountain, and then come back. And run up the trail and come back. And here were the old folks panting with every step. And now I look back and say... I wish I had the energy that Daryl had. (laughs) It ain't there no more. It's gone. But we need to be abounding like a child's physical energy in spiritual energy. But even as we physically grow older and weaker, some of those things tend to wane as well because it takes mentality and energy and emotion that sometimes is been lost on us to some degree we we've lost physical energy perhaps as we age but we also lose a lot of other energies you just get too weak too tired too old too feeling too lousy or whatever it might be to have an abundant life but i think a lot of it is that we just simply don't have the abundance of the Spirit of God we need to overcome the physical debilities that we might have and to get past them. You know, it doesn't say you need to be Christian until you get old and decrepit, and then you can just sit down and relax. The Apostle John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation when he was in his high 90s. And that's when people were only living roughly 70 years. So, he had a goal, a purpose, a reason in the church to stir himself up and to do those things that needed to be done for the benefit of others. Even though he was physically getting very aged, I'm sure his hearing, his sight, his mentality had gone downhill sometimes, or to some degree. But he stirred himself up to be able to produce... Some wonderful works, even at that advanced age. So, old age isn't an excuse, okay? We have to continue to grow, overcome, until the day we die, or until we're changed in the spirit of Christ's return, whichever comes first. So these things need to abound, and they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Emmanuel one thing to understand, but it's another thing to abound and not to be barren. What does barren mean? It's a reference to a woman without children. And women have always desired to have children as a natural thing. And throughout history, when someone has not been able to have children, it has been a very, very difficult thing for them to accept and to deal with. Now that can be a physical barrenness because of infertility or whatever, but it can also be that we have to be sometimes units for the kingdom of God, uh, as Paul said he had become in a way. There's no one around to marry of like mind and like kind in that sense, and we're not to become unequally yoked with unbelievers. So it restricts us to a great degree. And that is a type of barrenness as well. But he does not want us to be spiritually barren or unfruitful, not producing in the knowledge of God and of Christ. Now you can be a peach tree or an apple tree, and maybe that's wonderful. Fruit trees are good, but you'd better produce fruit as well. Otherwise, you might as well be an elm tree. Because if there's no fruit on a peach or an apple tree, it's not productive. It isn't of any help to anybody. And Christ even said of the fig tree, if it's barren, give it one more year, and if it still doesn't give us figs, pull it up, throw it in the fire, burn it up. At least get some fuel out of it, some heat out of it. But we got to be fruitful too. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see far off. That's speaking of spiritual blindness. Can't see has lost vision of why we're here. That we need to be working daily to overcome, to grow, to control our thought process and what we allow to go through our minds and what we allow to come out our mouth or not. It's a constant battle that we have. And if we lack these things, he says, we're spiritually blind and can't see. We've lost vision. And that's, as I said in Hosea, tantamount to destruction. You lose vision, you perish. But we have a spiritual life, not just a physical life to live. And we need not only physical vision to walk on the earth, We need spiritual vision so that someday we can be lifted off the earth to meet Christ as He returns to the earth and rule with Him here for a thousand years. So, if we lack these things, we're spiritually blind. Well, by a miracle, being able to see spiritually can be given to us as a gift. God has already gifted us with His Spirit by baptism and the laying on of hands. He says, don't quench the Spirit, but cause it to grow and flow through you and out to others. But if we're blind spiritually and can't see, then we've forgotten that we're purged from old sins. In other words... It's easy to live in the past. It's easy to berate ourselves over the past or somebody else's past, whichever we choose. A lot of people focus on someone else's past or their own and are discouraged or discouraging. He says, no, you're supposed to forget the past. You were purged of that. I mentioned that right after Passover again. We should look upon ourselves through Christ as clean and then try to stay that way. But it's easy to forget that our past is purged away in the blood of Christ and so is everybody else's. So leave it alone. Don't go there. Do you realize how much happier and joyful and close and loving a congregation is when no one remembers anyone else's mistakes or past or sins or deficiencies. I don't know that that's ever happened yet in the face of the earth, but the closer we are to it, the better off we're going to be, the better we're going to get along. Who do we think we are? When God the Father, the greatest being in the universe, and his Son, the second greatest being in the universe, forgive, expunge, remove your evil record, and then we remember someone's mistakes or sins and repeat them, do you realize That that is presumption and the same as witchcraft? You are placing your mind and your opinion and your memory ahead of Almighty God. Because he says he forgives them and they're washed away and gone. So who are we to retain them? Do we put ourselves above God? We read that, I think, in James, about how we do that. He's the judge. We are not. That seems to be something that was very much on James's mind, and now we find it in Peter. Verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, instead of Remembering the past, remembering sins, remembering grievances and slights and whatever else. Let's work at making our calling and election sure. And he says the way we do that is in how we treat one another. Christ made that so very, very clear. That if we treat each other with the kindness and love that we think we treat Christ then we will be judged affirmatively and positively. But if we aren't kind and gentle and loving and forgiving of one another, we will not be forgiven or shown mercy. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 25. It's all through the Bible. It's in the Psalms. We saw it many times. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Now, we want to be a part of the kingdom of God, don't we? And we don't want to fall out of the grace of God. We don't want to spiritually fall and not be included in the kingdom of God. So he says, if you do the things I've been talking about here, you won't fall. We can ensure that we will be in the kingdom of God. Isn't that what he says? Make your calling and your election sure. Don't give God any chance or opportunity to say, I reject that one. Don't go there. We can make it a sure thing. That doesn't mean once saved, always saved. Don't get me wrong, because anybody can fall from the grace of God. Paul said that of himself. He was an apostle trained for three years in the Arabian desert by Christ himself. And he said he had to be very careful that he not fall away. And Peter is saying, Peter understood the same concept. Make sure that your calling and your election is sure. And if you do the things that he says here, you will remain faithful and true and endure to the end. Christ said that those who endure to the end will be saved, in Matthew 24. Verse 11, For so, so," with these requirements that we've been reading, an entrance shall be ministered to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Emmanuel. God wants us to be in his kingdom. He called us to be in his kingdom. He's very positive about it. So, he will serve us, or minister to us, abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. He says it is, uh, let's see, how does he put it? It is his, I think I quoted it a week or two ago, or three. uh, It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom of God. So, he, as we saw the word abundance, or abundant, it is his good pleasure He abundantly or emotionally wants us to make it into His kingdom. He's not sitting up there saying, boy, just do something wrong. I'm going to get you. This is His attitude. It isn't His approach. His approach is, I want you here. Please change. Please grow. Please overcome so that I can give you these crowns i wanted. That I want to. That's why He told all seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, if you will overcome... You'll receive all these blessings that he enumerates to all the churches throughout those two chapters. That's what he really wants to do. He didn't make us in vain. He didn't create us to failure. He created us to be part of his kingdom. And he and his son are doing everything they can to help us grow and overcome. Even chastening. Even trials, troubles, tribulations that stir us and help us see, boy, what I'm doing is not getting me anywhere. So I better get on my knees, grow, change, overcome. Because he really, really wants us there. Verse 12 Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. I jumped forward in making that statement earlier. Peter says, I'm not going to be negligent. I'm going to put you always in remembrance. I'm going to keep saying this over and over and over again so that we might not only get it, but be reminded of it. Because even things we understand clearly and well, we can let drop to the ground, as Jeremiah says, or kind of forget for the time being, because I'm so busy doing this, oh, I didn't remember that. So, that comes easy. And that's why we need to be reminded over and over and over again. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just read James 3 once and say, don't, everybody, don't anybody ever abuse their tongue anymore. Don't ever say anything bad about anybody and speak evil. Let's all speak well of each other and be encouraging and uplifting from now on. Good deal, that's done. Never have to mention that again. Yeah, right. It doesn't come that easy. but That's what we're called to do. So Peter says, I will always be putting you in remembrance of these things, though you know them. A lot of times we don't say anything new. I've heard that before. Well, yeah, you have. Why are you hearing it again? Because you ain't done nothing about it before. That's why... Put you in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. We all understand the truth, the knowledge of God, and his plan and purpose for mankind. That doesn't mean that we always keep that forefront as a vision in our mind, because we stray from the path so easily. Verse 13, Yes, I think it proper, or meet, or fitting, as long as I am in this body, or tabernacle, the, the spirit of, the, the, or the, the body that the spirit of God dwells in, temple, tabernacle, whatever word, as long as I draw breath, he's saying, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. So Peter is instructing us that we need to be rem- reminded and to remember and he's also instructing me, who's hopefully following in Peter's footsteps by reading Peter's words, to remind all of us, myself included. Knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as our Lord Emmanuel has showed me, Christ had told him, I think it was in John 21, that uh, he would be crucified as Christ was, that he would be led and carried where he didn't want to go. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. So he says, I know my death is coming fairly soon now. Christ told me it would happen, and maybe he could see the storm cloud gathering. Maybe some of the other apostles had already been martyred, I don't know. But he could see that his time was coming soon. And he says, as long as I draw breath, brethren, I'm going to remind you of these things. Even though you may have heard them a thousand times, we still haven't had enough integrity to live up to them in the way that God would have us do. We all fall short of the glory of God. Now, should we be suddenly all just discouraged and cancel potluck and... Put on sackcloth and ashes and fast for 40 days? No, not necessarily. Let's just understand that we still have growth to do. Do you need to be discouraged when you're eight years old that you're not six feet tall? No, just accept the fact that someday you may be. Well, I didn't get there, but so what? It doesn't matter still get as big as you're going to get. But when we were eight, we didn't just curl up in a little ball and die because we weren't grown, did we? No, we just kept growing, kept eating, doing those things that made us grow. So let's understand our deficiencies, but not look upon them in that sense as liabilities that we need to be discouraged about. Just be working, growing, Feeding your mind with the words of God. You know, I'm commissioned to remind us all publicly, but you're commissioned to read this book and remind yourself privately and to increase your growth and spiritual understanding. Because there's more here than can be covered in an hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half if I push it on the Sabbath. Moreover, verse 15, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. So he says, not only am I going to tell you over and over and over again while I'm alive, but I'm going to write it down so that you can remind it even after I'm dead. And that's exactly what happened. We have the first and second book of Peter, 2,000 years later, that we can read and learn and grow from the things that Peter told the church back then. Well, he wanted what he was doing to be a book of remembrance. He was aware that New Testament Scripture needed to be written and canonized, just as he was aware that the ancient prophets had written things that God wanted him to remember thousands of years later. So he said, I'm going to do the same thing. Verse 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables, we're not telling you a pack of lies that sound good, but this is the truth, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Emmanuel, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now he showed majesty even as he hung on that stake, he was bereft of physical strength and energy. He did not defend himself. But what a majestic figure that was. That his attitude was such that he did not get angry, he didn't got, did not get frustrated or upset with those people who were torturing him and causing his bones to show through the flesh and muscle. And said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Now, there is the attitude that we are to have one with another. Forgive them. They're making mistakes, they're not thinking the way they ought to think. Have mercy, Father. If we would treat each other as Christ treated us on that day, our spiritual retardation would have come to an end. And then we will be spiritually mature. So we have a great goal, a great challenge, a great opportunity before us today. Not to be discouraged by our lacks, but to be encouraged by His power and His strength, His majesty and His spirit to develop those qualities that lead to an abundance of of the qualities of God and the way we treat one another. What an awesome opportunity to come to have the fruit of the Spirit of God and to demonstrate that daily to each other. You want to be adventurous? You want challenges in life? Think like God. Treat each other like God treats us. Now there's you a challenge and an adventure that's worth taking on. And it's not an easy one. Rock climbing is quite easy by comparison. For he received from God, verse 17, the Father, honor and glory... When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. He's speaking there of the transfiguration, where God told them to listen to the Son. We also have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto until you do well that you take heed is unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private, should be origination, not uh, interpretation. It all came from God. The origin of all the prophecies was the Father and His Son who gave them to the prophets. Well, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, so that's showing that the word origination is correct there in context. He's not talking about interpreting prophecy, he's talking about the beginnings of or the or origination of prophecy. It didn't come by man, or the will, or the desire of man to be a prophet, but it came But the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, all those prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, and Daniel, and so on, were spawned from the mind of God, and the men were inspired to write them down the way they are. That's why it says that this is not what people call the the book of Revelation, the Revelation of John. The very first thing it says in the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He caused John to see a vision and to write down what he saw. So the origination was Christ. It wasn't John. It wasn't John's revelation. It was a revelation of Christ through John. And that's the way the Scripture was written. So he says, listen to these things that the prophet said, and listen to what I am saying Peter is saying here, and that all these things that he was preaching had their origin with God in heaven. And therefore, they are to be taken very seriously, and that we are to diligently pursue them, as he said earlier. So he's giving us a lot of hope here that God wants us in his kingdom, And he's urging us on to come to have the fruit of the Spirit of God so that we can make our calling and election sure, that we not be wasting our time and our energy trying to be a Christian without following through and actually becoming spiritually mature and coming to think like God and the Son think and act as they act. It's not a charade. It's not a pack of lies, it's simply the truth. If you will live this way, I will give you the gift of eternal life. So he urges us to be diligent in pursuit of the qualities of God so that we might enter into eternal life. A great deal to be aware of and to pursue, but also to be encouraged by.